So again, there's that gap of when we transitioned from film to digital, but hadn't yet gotten to where we were just storing everything in the cloud. So there's like this window of people's lives. And I've talked to tons of friends about it. And they all have like said that there's like a ton of stuff from inside this window that they don't have any records of. In our last episode, uh, you stated about how you wanted uh, everyone to do everything for you and provide you all the data in all the ways that you wanted in an easy consume manner. Well, of course. Yeah. And towards the end of that, we kind of came upon another topic, which is something I had been thinking about, which is not just data not being accessible that is being saved somewhere, but data that has actually been lost. Mm. Um, and like, obviously, we always tell people make good backups. Just having it on your computer is not good enough. You need a backup, and preferably not in your house, right? Or not on a drive that's also attached to the same computer, right? But I was thinking about this in a completely different aspect, and that is, in talking with friends over the years, I've noticed that there seems to be kind of a window of time of information, data, whatever you want to call it, that has kind of just fallen down a memory hole. If we look at just History in general. We have a great deal of history about things in the past because there were hard copies. You know, letters that we have from people in the 17 and 1800s because it was written on paper and the paper got stuck in a box somewhere and the box just got moved through houses over time. And yes, obviously a lot has been lost due to being thrown out, fires, natural disasters, etc. But we still have a fair amount. And I was thinking about how there seems to be a window from like the late nineties to about the late early two thousands. Okay. So let's just say 98 to 2008. Let's okay. take that as a, as a span. 10 year window. Yeah. Where a lot of information was lost because it was at that point where we just started to merge over to doing things digitally. And we didn't really have any backup systems in place. I mean, there, there's letters with friends back and forth that I only have, because I happen to have printed off a hard copy of it. Mm -hmm. Because the email accounts that I used back then, well, they're all dead and gone. I mean, the dot-com boom, you know, there were tons of places that were providing email services. I've talked before about the Palm Pilots. You know, I had the, the Palm 7X, which has the wireless service. And Nerd. You had, a Palm, you had a Palm.net email account. Well, obviously, any emails that I sent on that, well, they're gone. They're gone, yeah. that company's gone. They're, they're just poof. It's gone squared. It's been like... The, the husk of it has been sold twice, I think. Mm -hmm. And like, I remember then I have some emails that I had sent, but the only reason I have them is because I had actually on the palm had copied and pasted them from the email application to a text file, which I could then sync with my computer to then get the text file on the computer to then be able to print off. Right. Yeah. Now, obviously, that was something that most people weren't going to go through the steps of doing. And I started thinking about then beyond just emails and stuff like that, but like photos. Mm -hmm. There's that period where people stopped using film and started using digital cameras. And they saved the computer pictures on their computer and then later their computer died or they got rid of it or whatever. And so again, there's that gap of when we transitioned from film to digital but hadn't yet gotten to where we were just storing everything in the cloud. Right. So there's like this window of people's lives and I've talked to tons of friends about it and they all have like said that there's like a ton of stuff from inside this window that they don't have any records of. And so my thought was, you know, does that apply to you? Or do you have things from that? Like, do you have a ton of photos, family photos from that time when you first started going digital or do you have letters with friends from that time because you printed them off or are they just gone in the ether or what? So, um, let me think here. I didn't really take much in the way of pictures. Uh, I have like nine or 10 rolls of film that was processed from a trip to Italy in 2001. So I do have a whole parcel of those. And I recently stumbled across them and I was looking over them like, wow, I'm and Leibowitz. I am not. It was a uh, poor shooting, we'll say. But some of them were in challenging conditions and I didn't really know what I was doing. And it was back in the days of the film camera where you took a picture and you had no idea if it turned out okay. So you probably took two 
just in case the first one wasn't good. So I have had, I have that. I actually still have control over the two email addresses I was using back in those days. So I can go back and get emails from that era. Now I wasn't really communicating very much via email. I was mostly talking to people in person or making a phone call. I didn't really email much. And I didn't really text message much either. Those text messages are gone, by the way. So I know there was some significant portion of, you know, social life and coordinating for study or, or whatever that is just gone. Um, and I recall back in those days, they were trying to solve some of this problem. And so they started making SIM cards with extra room on it. So you could copy contacts and some important text messages there. And they could move it from phone to phone back before we started putting everything in the cloud, like you stated. I don't have a ton of records from that era. And I was sitting here thinking, you know, he's right, but I don't know if that's because I didn't keep them or I just didn't generate them, you know, since so much of my life was lived synchronously, communicating synchronously in front of people or on the phone with people, I didn't feel the need to write things down like that. I still have some notes from the job I had in that era, so it's in a box somewhere. I don't really have a lot of good hand or like printed records of things before 2013 or 2014 when i started really thinking about this like i don't really have any physical copies of things i better start keeping stuff so like that's when i changed my right about then is when credit cards were going to um paperless i think is the term they use i would say saving them two dollars and fifty cents every bill either way and i specifically opted not to get paperless because i don't really I know what to do with all the bills in my email and I feel bad like they're now someone else can get into them. So I have paper copies still being sent to the house, believe it or not. Maybe that's old skill, but it really does work really well when you have power outage or you lose access to something like this. I have those records. They'll never go away unless I have a fire and I am, I've got a fire safe I'm about to move them all into. So anyway, a lot of that's to say, I don't have a lot of records from that era, but I don't think it's because I've lost them. It's because I didn't generate them, but I do have some losses and. I kind of lament that, actually. Well, I, have th I had this problem on text messages probably up through 2014 or 2015. But the text messages are mostly ephemeral anyway. I mean, some, some, some important stuff happens on text, more so now than it used to, I would think. But to me, I, I, don't, I don't transact important business or emotional business on text message if I can help it. Because it's, that's, to me, that's asking for misinterpretation. So when I switched over to using um, Signal and Telegram for my messaging applications, they, they store that on your device and you can transfer it if you want. Uh, so when I transferred phones recently, it just brought all of my messages over. It was very nice. So I had all my history still. And I think that I'll just keep doing that and occasionally make backups. About every six months or so, I was backing up the phone just in case. So. Oh, I do have backups from that era, though. It's floating around in the file server somewhere. I've run into them like, why do I have stuff from 2006 on here? Oh, that's right. I backed up my computer before I rebuilt it. Okay, that's cool. I wonder what's in here. A whole lot of nothing. Okay. So I do have some data from the era. But I, I don't think I have the same problem like you're, you're describing. Not as bad. So one of my friends I was talking to a couple weeks ago, and him and his wife were discussing about, you know, some of their first dates first, you know, interactions and stuff like that. Right. Well, it was all on text. Mm -hmm. So as they got a new phone, well, those texts are gone because they were stored on the phone and they don't have them on the new ones. And, um, and it was funny because he was pointing out, he's like, I actually have the first letters that his great grandparents had been writing back and forth when they first met and the correspondence of them getting to know each other, you know, up until they got married. Like mm -hmm. he has that, he has all of it. He has the entire you know, back and forth copies of all of the letters. But yet for him and his wife, he has nothing. Mm -hmm. That's a concern um, to me. Yeah. So like generations down the road, I'm not just thinking like short term, but like long term, we're going to have a gap where there's going to be, you know, well, a gap. Mm -hmm. And I don't really plus uh, put much faith in cloud services because like everybody's like, oh, this is going to solve the problem. But again, to bring back to, you know, Palm.net, that was a cloud service mm -hmm. in the early 2000s. And yeah, it got bought and sold multiple times, got closed down. You know, they retained the stuff for a while, but then, of course, it got deleted and now it's just gone. Mm -hmm. And of course, that is also assuming that you have access to the Internet all the time. Right. Yes. 
you know, we don't know what kind of natural disaster could take place. And, you know, Dallas had a bad situation with weather this past year. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's a lot of data centers in that area. Like, could something happen natural disaster-wise that actually causes data centers to then have a problem? Um, I mean, we don't typically put data centers in flood areas, but, you know, things happen. Mm-hmm. So it makes me wonder, how, how smart of an idea is it to just completely rely on cloud storage as, oh, well, this is the, this is the backup? Well, I, I try not to do that at all, frankly. I do use cloud storage for backup, but it's not my only backup for that reason. I try and think of things vendor agnostically, and that manifests itself in one way as don't really rely upon your cloud backups for the longevity thing. So that's what I have the file server at the house, and then I, you know, I ZFS send to an offsite place that I've got. I'm, I probably should, it would cost me less money to move over using Tarsnap. Free advertising, by the way, but uh, I haven't done it yet. I've been kind of distracted with a lot of stuff, and I, I want to have it offsite. But I'm also cognizant of the fact that Tarsnap is another cloud service, and they could go mm-hmm. out of business. I don't really have and anything I think on crazy the back like end that. He use, I think on the back end, he uses Amazon as well. Oh, okay, yeah. So, so hmm. it's still sitting on Amazon servers. Right. I mean, relying upon physical, there's not really a lot of options for storing something in a physical nature that will survive 50 years, except printing it out on paper that won't. That's it's got low acid content, so it won't yellow over time and destroy itself. And using ink that will survive. If you really want to keep something a long time, you have to print it out and you have to store it. And in the '90s and 2000s, we were writing everything to CDs and then DVDs for backups. Well, those writable CDs they have a shelf life of 10 to 12 years. So some of those, the better ones may have had 15 to 20, but we're 20 years out, 20 plus years out from when that was very common. So a lot of those backup discs, if you have any sitting around in your study. Maybe pull it out, listener, and pop it in your CD-ROM drive in your computer if you have one. <laughs> it's not always a given anymore. Uh, see if they work. I'm willing to bet you're going to have some bit rot on there, whether you meant to or not. So what, do you, what's your, what are your options there? I mean, if you want to store it what's well, still digital, you've got to stick it on a hard drive and then hope that the formats don't change. Which Well, as long as, I mean, yeah. But, for instance, if you were to store it on, say, a USB hard drive, it's fair to say USB is not going to be going away anytime soon. Not likely to, yes. And even if we get to USB versions, I don't know, 9, and they're like, okay, we're going to break backwards compatibility, mm-hmm. you would still have the ability to then get a system that has both USB 10 and USB 7, which is backwards compatible, right? to be able to transfer everything to a, then a, a new system. And, you know, especially on the, on the Linux side, you know, EXT2 is not going anywhere. It, it's going to be around forever. Even if they don't yeah. build it, and ship it in the kernel, it's still going to be available as a mm-hmm. module. Mm-hmm. Um, they would have to really change the entire everything for that to not work anymore. It's like like mantle of the earth stable. It's seriously, it's never right. going anywhere. So as long, you know, I wouldn't trust NTFS for long-term storage. <laughs> no, but, no. Yeah. You know, I, I think that there are ways that you could do hard drives and store them, but you would periodically want to still check the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's true. An intentionality to your backups and your longevity strategy every six months, maybe. And it's probably quite annoying. Oh, my six months period has expired. This weekend I have to go out to my offsite storage and make sure the drives are still working and then everything, maybe swap them out, check everything. I can actually access it, run some tests, do a backup, restore, uh, or restore from one of my backups just to know that everything is working. That's, that's considered good practice, but do you really know any consumers that are doing that? Maybe only the most paranoid of them. Not really. Yeah, no, it's not convenient. And cloud services are, if nothing else, convenient and usually cheap. Not always, but mm-hmm. usually cheap and exceedingly convenient. And you only pay for what you're using. But so, again, you don't, you don't know that it's going to be around. Because even if you take out natural disasters and you know economic meltdown where Amazon goes out of business or sells off assets or, or all of that, you, you still have the issue of, hypothetically, Amazon can at any point in time go we're terminating your service and we're deleting your data and there's nothing you could do about it. And yep. like, oh yeah, you can sue them for, you know, breach of contract. And okay, great. Now you're going to be in a three-year federal lawsuit against Amazon. You've still lost your data. Even if you win, your data is gone. So right. you're just suing for spite at that point, which mm-hmm. I'm totally down for. If you want to sue for spite and make them <laughs> suffer because they deleted your data, go for it. But yeah, yeah. the so, fact is you're, you're still out. Mm-hmm. I know GitHub did a... 
I think, I don't know if they did it at um, Svalbard where the seed vault is or not, but I know they did an Arctic code vault mm-hmm. where they took main projects, not just like every project, and they actually stored it, archived it, and then shipped it somewhere, mm-hmm. hypothetically for the end of the world so we would still have all that software. And I've never been a fan of that, to be honest. Do you know why? Because if the end of the world comes in 30 years, the data format's going to be the same. Everything we write in a computer it's using Unicode these days, ASCII back in older days, and we haven't really changed that much, but that's no guarantee that we won't in the future. And the documents we're writing now, so I believe, are they going to be readable in 200 years? So I believe the concept is, because I talked to somebody at the Smithsonian a couple years ago who did data archival, was that when, like, when a legit institution that's doing, like, is seriously considering long-term, is they actually store hardware along with the data mm-hmm. type so that it can, and information on the hardware. Right. So if there's something wrong with the hardware, the hardware can be repaired. Mm-hmm. So it'll be like physical printouts of like what's necessary for the hardware to work. The hardware itself, the schematics for the hardware in case there's something that happens. And then the stuff that would hook up to the hardware to then be mm-hmm. able to read the data. So that even if we moved on to a different data type and different formats and all that, the old system, as long as it could get a, you know, 120 volts, could technically pull the data back. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Now, and I don't know someone if, could if, look at it and then translate it by a human. That'd be incredibly inefficient, but it's possible. Right. Well, or they'd have records of what the USB spec was, so they could create a USB interface to the new format of whatever it is. Now, I don't know if GitHub did that, but I just know that that is something that people who are serious in data archival do consider. But, like, I know when you were here for self and we did our attempt to get Doom running. Uh, like, we ran into that when we were going to try to build a kernel. Because, mm-hmm. well, you built the kernel a little differently in 1993, as it turns out. And both of us were scratching our heads going, oh, wow, yeah, how do we do that again? And we were searching for information, and it took us probably a good 30 minutes to an hour to find a document that was old enough to actually cover the version that we were testing. Right. Because, like, from about 2006 on, we could find lots of data about that. And it's like, well, great, but that's too new. Like, this is pre-ELF. What do we do? And it took us a while to actually find it. Now, thankfully, the Linux Documentation Project still has their site up and still has a lot of information on it. Simple plug, they do have a GitHub repo, which is supposed to have everything in it. Oh, nice. However... I have actually not found the documents that we were looking at in the GitHub. Because oh. it's kind of like crazy organized in the GitHub. It's kind of disorganized. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping everything is in there. It would be kind of mm. silly if it wasn't. It would be good to check up on. Because that document, more than anything else, I think... I can't see that more than anything else. But yeah, I think that there's going to be crazy people like you and I trying to do these kinds of things. Or something. And it's valuable to have those docs. I'm, I'm, I don't know if it was an oversight that those docs were still available. I don't think so. I think it's more like we had, we committed to host these docs. We're going to continue to host them. That's our charter. It doesn't cost us much in the way of hard drive space to host another 4KB of text or whatever. Uh, maybe maybe eight. Oh, yeah, huge hardship. So just go ahead and keep all that stuff around and you know limp it along from server to server if we have to migrate to the next one, whatever. Yeah. I recall also... Just side note on that compilation, I had completely forgotten how clunky it was to compile sound. I remember one of our earliest episodes was me complaining about sound in those days. And now going through that experience in June reminded me one of the things that made it so clunky and painful was you had a couple options and the, it was basically it was a wizard to compile your sound. And if you were deviating at all from what the wizard could do, you were in for a bad time. So side note, that aside, I would have to guess there's a lot of people that still have that stuff in their own stashes, that kind of those, those docs from long ago, or they have old systems lying around that they hopefully could fire up with it on there or something. There's just, um, some of it would just be benign neglect. They just happen to never recycle that system. But some of them are actively keeping that data because they want to maintain that. Like you, your wall, oh, uh, Linux distress. Yeah, I think that is very true for, you know, the geeks among us. But I don't think to bring up the term that people love to blame everything. I don't think the boomers are doing that. <laughs> boomers. And I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that most of the generation X isn't even doing that. Right, yeah. You know, yeah, the techie people are, but beyond that, like I'm pretty sure that a lot of people are. I mean, 
I don't know how many times that somebody has like given me an old computer because they wanted it out of their house. And they just literally was like, here, take it. And it's like, well, what's on here? I, I don't know, just old stuff. Well, do you want copies? Ah, no, I don't need it. It's like, okay. So you're like your whole life is on this hard drive for those three years. To five you years. Using. Yeah, exactly. And you don't even know what's there anymore because you've forgotten about it and you don't care. Yeah. And I know a lot of people like for internet things, when we're talking about the Linux documentation project, we'll bring up archive.org. Mm -hmm. And archive.org is a great resource, but again, I don't really think it's wise of us to bank on it always being available. I agree. And I think also we're, we're injecting a little bit of, uh, okay. So you started the conversation with an anecdote about uh, having your friends, having their grandmother and grandfather's letters back and forth, a very targeted thing, something that was cherished and kept uh, for a purpose. It wasn't grandmother's random recipes scribbled down on a piece of notepaper somewhere, wherever that she had them. No, I'm sure those are valuable too. But like these things were curated. They were important to the people that kept them. I think a lot of what causes someone to want to do this is they find they have a lot of um, either interest or they have a lot invested in the data that they're keeping. Because they, you're spending effort to curate this data and keep it somehow. It must be special to you or else it's not worth the effort. You have so many other things going on in life that you can spend your effort on. The opportunity cost is quite high to try and save some of this stuff. Now, Okay, I collect letters, I stick them in a, in a drawer somewhere. That's easy. It's a physical thing. You just need some space, right? In this era, if you want to do something like that, you got to have a working printer. I bet a lot of people don't really have working printers anymore. They don't use them. So we used to be there was a printer in every home that had a computer. I'm trying to think of a reason why a home would have a printer without a computer. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Anyway, um... But now I think a lot of people don't have printers or they probably have the one that they bought back in 2006 and they haven't needed one since then. So they haven't bothered to get another one. If they need to print something, they can go to the library or go pay FedEx Kinko's or something. And that, and that printer is probably out of ink and they had never bought new ink because mm -hmm. it's stupid expensive. It's, it's stupid expensive and now it's all dried in place. So they would have to do some serious cleaning to get it to work again. So at that point, it's not worth the effort. So just pitch it. If you really do need a printer, you'll get a new one. That's what, what ends up happening. That's the cycle of life for those things. That's what I did for my mom. Every time she needed a new ink cartridge, it would just be, well, I'll just go get you the cheapest brother printer that exists, which is $10 more than another ink cartridge. And there you go. Yep. So I ran into that. We have a brother printer, scanner, copier thing. It can scan just fine, but for some reason it no longer prints. Answer that. So I know the actual physical printing function still works because it wouldn't be able to scan otherwise or, or, or to copy, but you can't print to it. <laughs> I don't know why. I haven't sat around to figure it out. It's it's not a high priority for me. But um, anyway, I'm trying to return back to the, the curated thing. There's a lot of data. Someone hands you a computer that they had in 1999, and they say, I don't, I don't care what's on here. It's yours. There's a whole lot of data on there. The documents they were doing. They were working through some game, and they had some notes saved on there. They had some um, cutesy letters to this girl they were sweet on, or this boy they were sweet on, or whatever. I, I don't know. Uh, probably some saved emails. Uh, pictures that grandma wouldn't stop sending like okay grandma i know you've learned to use the internet this is great stop sending me pictures kind of thing if it was important i would expect they would have made the effort to curate it and keep it somehow but the, well, the sheer fact that they haven't done that tells me it's not important to them so i also think that this is this is part of the, the problem is that it's well i don't think it's important to me therefore it's not important to anyone else whereas yeah. when you're talking about stuff like family history. You know, yeah, one generation might go, eh, this isn't, this isn't a big deal. I, I don't care about this. But their kids or their grandkids might actually be very interested in that. Now, they might not, but they may. And it seems kind of callous to go, well, because I don't care about it, F everybody else in the family who might. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, and I'm also thinking now, if I step outside of like the, the personal, what am I keeping? And I go and I think if um, I'm a biographer trying to track an important person from this era, oh my gosh, it must be maddening to get the right data to try and write a biography of people that are, that are important from this era. You know, there's, there's people like uh, Vent Cerf, you know, or, or um, anybody else from that, that pre-internet era that was writing stuff in an old style and kind of keeping it, and we have a lot of data on them. And then you had the rise of these internet personalities. And they don't last long. They don't have the same body of published work. There's also an aspect here of, like, Vint Cerf, he, he had his own work that he published. He had his own notes. He had his own design, whatever, sir. 
Tim Berners-Lee, someone. Pick, pick a name out of the hat from that era, right? They have a lot of stuff that they published because they were writing to other people in the community to help build this thing. And so they were collaborating via, or probably Usenet in those days. Uh, but they have some record of something that they have written. If you were an internet personality, if there was such a thing in 2001, what records do you think you have? You might have been, you had some posts on MySpace, right? Modern internet personalities, a lot of them are on YouTube. What's the lifespan of a YouTube video? Well, it depends. Has YouTube decided to kill you yet? Because, you know, once you piss someone off at YouTube, then it doesn't matter if you've been on there for, well, beyond that, it doesn't matter if you've been on there for 10 years, all your work is gone if they, if they decide to shut you down. Yep. That's probably a huge, there's also a lot of it. I don't upload videos to YouTube, so I don't know how it works, but I would imagine a lot of people, they upload it to YouTube and then that becomes their long-term copy. Mm-hmm. Now, thankfully, they, thankfully, a lot of creators are starting to realize they can't count on YouTube because YouTube has effed over so many creators. And it's like, hi, your entire back catalog, like all your work for the last 10, 7, whatever years, yeah, it's gone now. You don't have it. And for a lot of people, you know, if they were using it for revenue generation, even taking that out of the picture, your discoverability is gone because you have nothing for people to find. You mm-hmm. have to start over again. And when you were talking about you know, notes and stuff like that and writers. I'm thinking about like Frank Herbert. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had the novels that he put out, but he also had reams and reams of notes about information, about the storyline, about other points that was important for him to then get the stories in the ones that he published right, but he still had that saved that then his son was able to then take and use and flesh those out and, and mm-hmm. fill out the, that narrative universe. Whereas if it's all just on a computer, well... Right. The computer gets tossed, there 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 goes everything. If the hard drive there's, happens to die, oh well. Yeah. There's writers that I really admire and I've heard a lot of them, they'll like either handwrite or typewriter write their stuff. Like it's physical copy and then they'll hand the physical thing into the editor. Because that's what they're most comfortable with. That's when they most creative. Like Stephen King used a particular typewriter. Still uses. He's still with us, I think. Uh Neil Stevenson was handwriting a lot of his earlier stuff, I think. Piers Anthony semi-popular fantasy author, kind of a weird dude. He would, he's actually an old-term, old-time Linux guy. He would write stuff using Linux and I think LaTeX is how he used to do it. So he's, he's a, a different kind of example, but there's a lot of people that they, they were about producing a physical copy that they would then send to their publisher. And it was the publisher's job to make that into a format that they were going to publish and interact with and edit. So there's something about physically handling the content and you can't do that with a video, obviously, but it was with written things, there's something about handling the content. Like if I'm trying to digest um, a large class or a small code base or something, I find I digest it best if I can print it out. And I get some of those little flags and I would put like this flag here and there. And those are like matched, you know, and I kind of arrange them so I can see the, the flow. I have trouble jumping around in, the, in a file up and down, up and down, up and down. I'm, I'm much more side to side and parallel. So I, maybe that's just how I work, but I, I too want to handle something physical. And if I'm really trying to digest it, I print it out. I get physical copies of books instead of ebooks for the same reason. Handling it for some reason makes a big difference to me. This is, this is a tangent based on what you just mentioned. Is, do you know what mind mapping is? Yes. Okay. Th- now this may exist. Maybe I'm just an idiot for not knowing it. I would love for there to be a graphical code viewer that works on mind mapping, like the principles. So like the methods all get broken out into their individual pieces and then interlinked together based on what can feed them and what they can feed out to. Like, I think that would be brilliant for actually being able to understand complex code bases. And I bet there are such tools because uh, we know there's uh, intelligent fuzzers, which are trying to make sure they're covering every line of code. And so they have to kind of pick through the code and figure that out. So they would be internally creating kind of those maps anyway. What's to stop them from trying to publish a diagram of it. I know that there's a lot of density there and it may or may not translate to something that a human can digest. Like if you've seen the, uh, someone will do a system D analyze and have that print to the, the graphs format. And it's just like 900 unit files wide on one line. Cause that's the way dot rendered it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's completely undigestible to a human. You have to kind of make it look more, more normal for them to digest. It works fine for a computer. It was just, there you go. It's all horizontal. Right. So if intelligent fuzzers can do that, 
I've read of them. I've never actually used one. I'm sure maybe one of our listeners has and could confirm that. It's a big thing when you're trying to fuzz everything is you want to make sure you're covering every line. You want to try, you want to get to every, uh, whatever percentage of code you can get to. And you have to sometimes explore weird paths in order to get to some of the more obscure things. The only way to really ensure you're covering all that is if you have some system, probably with human help, that's going through the code and mapping things together. So there has to be tools out there that can do it. I suppose there's nothing stopping you from going into one of the mind mapping softwares, like getting all the functions. Maybe, maybe what I would do is I would do a profiler, run a couple input files through or, or, or normal data workloads or whatever, this program, and let it track what functions are being called, LTrace or something. And then like the top 20 of those become bubbles right off the top. Right, right off the bat in the mind mapping software. And then as you're working through, you just kind of connect them. There's nothing to saying a human couldn't do it. It just would be very inefficient. That would actually be really beneficial. Because then you would also, like the profilers are there. They help people identify, wow, uh, we're spending 56% of our processing time in this one function. And that's because it's allocating and deallocating memory every single time it's invoked. Can we speed that up? That kind of stuff. So I don't see any reason why we couldn't profile code to make mappings like that. And if there are such tools, listeners, please let us know. I would love to hear about them because I have some code bases I would love to untangle using that. That's, of course, assuming the code is written cleanly, you know, if it's not spaghetti code. But yeah, uh, but uh, popping the stack to go back to what we were talking about before, I did find a program which I've known about this for a while. I've used it a few times. It's been a few years. So hopefully development has definitely gotten better than where I tested it before. It worked before, but it was a little clunky. Clunky. And that is uh, ArchiveBox, which is at archivebox.io, which is basically like your own personal archive.org. You can run on hmm. your own, you know, if you have a NAS or something locally um, that you can run. Interesting. Oh, it's another one of the curl bash things. Well, I mean, you don't have to. I know, I know. I just... I think they, so ship, I it as, I think they ship it as a container too, so you can just... Okay. Yeah, I might, I might look into this. Your own personal archive. But then, see, there, there's an element to curation there. You're doing the work to, to establish what is and is not important. Mm -hmm. You're specifically putting it into your archive box. Now, if you're in the habit, if you build habits of doing that, oh, that was an important conversation. It needs to go in the archive box. Well, I think this is then, just for, like, websites. Like, if you find a website that's oh, got okay. information, that you're like, oh, this is going to be great. Like, you can save it locally. Okay. So then okay, you I have a copy, so that if the site goes down, it doesn't matter, you've still got it. Mm -hmm. And you're not dependent on archive having gotten it. Correct. Yeah, I have this problem a lot. Um, I work on guitar amps, and guitar amps have been around for 30, 40, 50, some of them as long as 70 years ago. And so people over the years have gone through and published information, and then that was they published it in 2002, and it lasted through 2012, and then the server they was on died, they never replaced it. Same kind of thing. But there's just a whole lot of data that gets lost that way, and archive.org is not always the best at capturing it. They've gotten better in the last 10 years, it seems like. But I can recall back in the 2000 through 2009 era, getting very frustrated with how little archive.org was saving. Or they, were, they would save the, the text, but not any images. Which, when you're looking at how someone was designing a speaker box in 1999, it's lots of images are important, and so it had none of them. It's just little squares where the images were supposed to be. So they later fixed that yeah, really with Base64 encoding, okay, which works. But then, of course, you know, depending on how many images it is and how big the images are, that can right. get a little big. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think it was a commitment because they were, they were, I'm sure, cognizant of this gap that there's a lot of content being stored in images that we, we can't really sort out what's important and what's not without a human looking at it and qualifying it. We don't have humans to look at and qualify all the things that we're capturing, so we're just going to have to generally capture everything. That's a, I actually admire the, the work that they've done. And yes, I know that there's not always going to be captures of everything. Um, but I, I still I get lucky more often than I don't when I'm looking for something that's now gone, and I go and find it on archive.org. It, uh, maybe it's the kind of things I'm looking for. I don't think you'd have as much success trying to go look at the archive.org of a certain... Twitter stream from 2013 or something. Who knows? I would not expect it to have that data. But uh, published pages, yeah. And I guess maybe it's the kind of content I'm going to look for. Content. Um, 
But I just keep coming back to this curation idea because I think that's the crux of the matter. I think the data that I produce today, I don't really think much of it. You know, emails I send at work are for work there. And first of all, I, I try and keep clean separations between different environments. So what I do at work doesn't come home. What I do at home doesn't go to work, that kind of stuff. So I don't want there to be cross-pollination and I'm not about to go lug a printer up to work so I can print out my emails and then store them in the office. That's just, that, first of all, looks kind of weird, not very socially acceptable. Second of all, it's a whole heck of a lot of effort. And third of all, I imagine that would raise some eyebrows like you're doing what? Why are you doing that? Oh, because I want to be able to read these in 25 years. Huh? That, that it just won't, it won't translate the way I want it to. And since it's not on, really on people's radars, because I, I imagine a lot of people consider the data that they have created not to be important enough to keep, not important enough to curate. When you see someone who is curating their data very particularly and carefully, it's a almost always it's a communication between two or more people. Are you curating the data? You're communicating with someone else? Are you asking them first? Like, I want to archive this data long term. I want to print out a copy of it. Are you okay with that? Are you doing that? I don't know. I wouldn't, I would expect not. It's just you're archiving the data that you have. So would that not, depending on the contents of the conversation, would it not make someone nervous? Hey, you archived all our conversations from 2008. That's when I was going through that really weird time. And I kind of said some stuff to you that I don't think you should be repeating. You, you have copies of that. I think we should destroy those. There's, there's a lot of that kind of thing going on too. And then there's always the concerns that whatever you keep can somehow be used against you, especially in the modern era where there's lots of brigading and doxing and such. That's, that's why you encrypt everything. Right. But then you, then you forget the keys or whatever. I, I have a lot of these challenges around the bootstrap kind of thing. Okay, so I'm going to encrypt this data. I'm using this key. What happens if I lose this key? Okay, maybe I'll have a second key. You know, that whole where the encrypted key that you have is actually in decrypts the actual key kind of thing. So you have a couple of copies there. But now you got to worry about if there's two, then there could be three because now you've added the level of interaction. Would you know? And you got to store this thing. What do you do about that? So I have all these concerns about that kind of bootstrap encryption kind of thing. So a lot of times I just end up hanging on to it myself and uh, encrypt, uh, encrypt uh, my backups at home at rest. I think probably it's time to rotate the key I was using for that now that I think about it. I just have a lot of concerns over that. And I guess I don't consider most of my communications important enough to curate and keep. Someone else may disagree. Someone else, I mean, maybe in 20 years I find some amazing something that leads to the first really functional human brain interface that doesn't have some flaw or something. And that opens up a whole new world. And so now it's important for us to go back and see, well, how did he come to that conclusion? What was he doing? And who knows what's important? I, I, I don't, this is actually a much vaster topic than I thought it was going to be when we came in. There's so many angles here to consider, but it all comes down to what do you consider, consider important, worth keeping? And are you, you, not like you specifically, but the editorial you, if that's a thing, are you willing to curate the data specifically to keep it? I personally generally am not. I don't know how you feel about it. I would like our episodes here to stay. This is kind of a, a record of, of interesting conversations we've had. I would like these to, to remain available forever, ideally. But, um... If it's 20 years from now and we're no longer publishing and no one's listening to it, I guess I would not be disappointed if they disappeared. You know, it's the time of my life and we've moved on. Actually, you know what? I take that back. I think I always want copies of these, no matter what. Yeah, imagine, imagine Beethoven going, yeah, I'm just writing this music for now and I don't care if people know about it in 50 years. Well, there were some composers that did that. Yeah. You know, it happened. Or private, private uh, compositions. That were then found out by people and then assigned numbers was or whatever. It Picasso? No, I'm um, sorry. Uh, uh, Van Gogh. He was like, people didn't think he was worth anything. Like in his right. own time, he, he would he paint was, over his own pictures. Yeah, he was, he yeah. was mocked and he was considered a bad artist and, you know, nobody mm -hmm. liked him. And yep. now we consider him one of the greatest artists of all time. Well, it's a good thing that some of his work has survived. Mm -hmm. Yep. There's a Doctor Who episode about mm -hmm. that that I really enjoyed. I found that was a very poignant and touching episode. If you haven't seen that, you don't have to be a Doctor Who fan to enjoy that episode. It's very, very moving. If you're a Van Gogh fan or an artist in general, art in general, there's a lot of things that I think are inconsequential that maybe someone else would not. And 
I don't like the idea of someone else poking through my life to decide what is and is not important, but it, I mean, at some point it could happen. And there's some theories that say, well, just save everything. You don't know what's important and you can review it later. But I think a lot of people that are saving everything, are they going back to review it later? I remember um, Noah showed up to self one year with Google Glass on, mm-hmm. I believe. And so it was kind of was recording everything he was doing all the time. I wonder if he's ever gone back to look at those. Here it's, you know, four or five years later from that. Has he looked at them in the last couple of years? Probably I not. Wonder. Probably not. You think it's important enough for him to keep those forever? Maybe. Maybe. Who's to say? I mean, in a hundred years when people want to do a documentary about, you know, the first two decade, three decades of Linux, if, if it's still around at the time, I mean, that's the kind of thing that will be considered absolute gold. Yes, it will. Yep. Hopefully our podcast is included in that absolute gold. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> No, no questions there. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Egotistically, just going to say yes. No, I, I just think there is so much effort required to think through all this because you produce so much data. If you're just keeping everything, then you run in, quickly run into, the, first of all, storage concerns. And second of all, how do I, assuming that I could want to look at anything, how do I set up a system that I can? I need some help with that. I'm not if I spend all of my waking hours trying to capture everything I'm doing, I'm not really going to be doing anything original. I'm going to be spending most of my waking hours just trying to capture it all. At that point, you're not living. You're, you're shuffling data. Right? No, I don't think it right, takes so, nearly as much time as you're claiming it takes. Okay, okay. I'm just trying to think. What, first of all, if you're trying to capture everything, define everything, right? For some people, that just means their text messages and their emails for, right. or, or their, their tweets or whatever. For others, it's like, I have video recordings and all my video conferences and that's everything. And all the button presses on my phone. Is that important? I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. Who knows? Maybe some people feel strongly about if they're trying to keep everything that like everything that's on their screen, they they capture it like once a second or something. I don't know. I'm trying to think like someone who thinks everything they do is important. It's kind of foreign to me. I don't really know how to handle that situation. And I, to take it back to where we started, I don't think people were thinking about such things at all in 2000 or 2008, even. Honestly, there's still a lot of records that were done by hand back in 2008, and everybody was trying to transfer them into a computer process, but it took sometimes up to a decade or, or more to computerize records. By, by now, most everything that was needing to be input into a computer probably is, with some exceptions for some very slow people or counties and such that don't have their records online or something. But I'm trying to put myself back in 2008. I didn't care at all about keeping any of that data. So even if I was wanting to keep it, I don't know how I would have done so. Short of like copying every text messages off the phone. Like you were saying, you saved uh, those emails from the Palm. Trying to think of how I would have done that. I don't, I don't think I would have, I, I would have cared. I think most people probably don't care now that there's this hole, but they will care later. And, you know, I think the, a lot of people are putting their data and their, their photos on Facebook and I don't know, it was five, six years ago, maybe longer, they introduced some review your own timeline or you were doing this uh, uh, last year, you were doing this, 10 years ago, you were doing that, that kind of thing. And it's just like, it's nostalgia is a very powerful emotion. And so they're, they're trying to play on that nostalgia to help you feel good about your life, maybe. So there is somebody doing the curating for you there, but it comes at a great cost of you giving them all your data. Someone, someone is paying attention to that. And I don't really think that anybody was... All right, let me take it back. Can't really use an absolute. I think there are very few people back in that era that you're citing, like 98 to 2008, that were really thinking about the data that we have. Do we care about it? Because I'm fascinated in that era, like, early and almost pre-internet, like from 91 through 96 or 7, and there's not much out there at all. It was, the, you know, things were changing so rapidly that they weren't, there wasn't a need to record. I mean, using it's there. Using it's probably the best source of, of data in history that I have from that era. But uh, there was books written. I, mean, I go and ask people that were alive in that era, and it wasn't notable. You know, what came after it? The internet arriving and computers taking over. That's what's notable. You know, the big telecom boom and then the crash in the late 90s. That's notable. What happened in 93? No, it's not notable. We were just cranking out sales or whatever. It's not really important. But that, that error to me, I, I find fascinating. That, that, when I observe history, is a data hole. 
maybe it's just the things that I'm interested in. So I, I can see what you're talking about, and I, it does concern me. It does not concern me enough for me to go and change some of my data collection and curation habits. I just don't care that much, I guess. But now I have to really think that position. Maybe I need to put more effort into it. Because you're right, I, I do. I really enjoy going back and listening or reading to stuff that I did before. Be like, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. I did that. And if I don't have a record of anything, then I have nothing to go back and listen to or look at. So maybe I need to start looking at my data more and curating more. Yeah, just another thing to do, I guess. How much stuff do you normally keep? Um, so text messages obviously are crap because they're just are crap. Um, so with Telegram, I've got most of the conversations that I care about backed up. So I technically still have the same email account that I had that I got in 97, I think it was, when Hotmail first, when I first got my first Hotmail account. But right. Hotmail took the liberty of deleting everything at some point when it was bought by new owners. Like, I still have the account, but, you know, at some point uh. when it transitioned, as it got, because it sold to somebody and then Microsoft bought it, is if I'm remembering mm -hmm. correctly. Um, but at some point... I remember those days. You know, yeah. I, I was there, I was like, oh, you know... It's, Something, something's going to be transferred, and then like a week later, I logged in and it was empty. <laughs> like I still have the account; I can still log into it. I can still send emails and get emails, right. but it's like everything from before that point is just gone. Hmm. I should go check on my old Hotmail account and see where that data is. So hmm. I have been making a point of like once a month, I have a, a laptop that I open up that has Thunderbird on it, and it's just like you know, download everything. It pulls everything down, and it's okay, shut down, put it away, so that. Worst case scenario, if I need to, I can open it back up, go into the account, then dig through to find it. Um, so, I mean, that takes all of five minutes a month, so it's not really that big of a deal. I mean, photos just go on the NAS. All the media that I produce go on the NAS. So do you have one NAS or two? I have two. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking also. I need to get a second one. Data in two places. Actually, I think I've been relying upon my offsite as the second NAS, and uh, that's been good enough for me. So... Yeah, I, I just think very carefully about the data that I do want to keep. I think I probably spend a little bit more effort or time on it than maybe it's merited. But, you know, I have like my tax documents for the last 10 or 12 years. Those are those are actually somewhat important. If you have to summarize your life and you have to go tell someone about who you were, that's a good place to start because it shows who you were employed by and what you made and where you were. So those are some real important keys, that kind of stuff. So. I have different tiers also for what data I'm being careful with. Like that, that to me, the, the tax returns, that's in the highest tier. Not a lot is in the highest tier, but that kind of stuff. Scans of important documents, things like that. That's the kind of stuff that I have like two, three, four, five copies in various places just to make sure that I don't lose it. But then some voice in the back of my head says, well, the more copies you have, the more you have to monitor them all. So be careful there, you know. Especially when data's at rest, you may not know if an attacker got in and started looking at your data. Would you know? If you didn't have some anti-intrusion system set up? You may not. I am cognizant of that, but I do have that that highest tier data that I, I really I pay attention to pretty regularly. If and I figure if that's all I can put effort towards, then that's probably enough. Certainly it puts me ahead of a, a lot of people that aren't tracking anything at all. Not that it's a competition, but you get what I'm saying. I wonder what I have. I'm going to have to go back on my NAS and look at what backups I have from that era. Because now I'm curious. I think I have quite a lot of stuff from that era. You know, backups from various systems. Because I was switching back and forth between Linux and Windows some in those days. And then I had I had a power book that I was working off of. And it it had some problems. Yes, 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 I know. Ample heat. Uh, so I was backing stuff up off the power book. So that in case it died on me, I would still have it. That kind of stuff. Kind of interesting. I have. Um, when I first got started building websites in like O2, I have all those. I don't know why. All my first attempts to make websites were, they're just pitiful. Oh man, we ought to put those up somewhere so we can take a look at them. Yeah, maybe. Maybe if you, if you bribe me, I might be willing to do that. Because they were very ruddy. But also kind of hilarious, you know? Well, I was trying to teach myself how to do graphic design, and I was never very good at it. So my websites were... Very heavy on formal CSS and very light on making it look pretty. So they were, I was very into a functional website design back then. It is funny though, the stumble process is that's the nostalgia speaking, you know? Oh, I did that. 
Boy, that looks terrible, but I did do that. That's kind of cool. I did that. I have this guitar pedal that I built a couple years ago to attenuate the signal between the power amp and the speaker. So if you want to turn the power amp up, but you don't want to blast yourself out, it like socks some of the energy away from it. Boy, that thing is so terribly built. But I, I keep it because I'm kind of proud of it. It's the first thing I, like I built everything by hand. I composed a box. I welded some bolts on to make uh, screw in points. I, I bent the metal myself into the right shape. Poorly, but it's in the right shape. I mounted everything. I screwed all the holes in. I ordered the components. I put them in. And so it's going to be one of those things I'm probably going to have my wall. Like, yeah, that's the first amp thing I ever built right there. Look at that terrible thing. Now look where we've come, you know, but it's, it's cool to have that. So I wonder if I can take that nostalgia and use that as a motivator for wanting to curate my data better. Hmm. That might work. I, maybe I just, uh, I don't know. I'll have to think about that. Let me, let me think on that. That might actually be pretty interesting. Okay. Because that nostal- nostalgia, it's been, I view it as one of the most powerful emotions. Surprisingly, I don't know why it's so powerful, but it's like when you see people that get caught up in nostalgia, it's like they get, a lot of times I see them getting overwhelmed very easily, depending on how powerful the emotion is or the, the memory that they're recalling. But usually when you have that powerful wave of nostalgia, boy, that opens wallets. It gets people emotional. It gets them talking. How many copies of music that was produced in the 60s have been purchased because of nostalgia alone. You hear it on the radio, it's like, oh, I don't have a copy of that. I'm going to go out and get it. Or, oh, I had a copy of that on cassette, but we don't do cassettes anymore, so I better go get another copy of it. Billions of dollars spent just purely on nostalgia. So clearly it's a powerful emotion. I wonder if I could tap into that. So this, this topic is actually quite vast. It seems like we always find these. It seems like a simple premise right up front. And then we dive in and we discover, wait, no, there's quite a lot of depth down there. I don't know, I kind of like that, though. Do you have any closing thoughts? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of winding down on this because now I realize I have a lot of actions to take. But like, go get them done. No, right? nothing, nothing really pops to mind. I'm curious as to what, uh, what the listeners think, if they have any thoughts on this. Yes. Mm-hmm. If you have any data retention strategies that you wouldn't mind sharing, we have to know what the data is. If you're just kind of storing everything, I would ask, are you ever going to look at it? And if you're storing some selective things, I would ask, why, what's your selection criteria for it? And how important is it to you that you keep regular communications, like your emails and your texts? That kind of information. Because I think if you're just aware of it, then that changes, well, first of all, it changes how you communicate. If you know that you're going to be keeping this later, you probably write something differently. You know, like when I'm writing an email at work, I know this could end up in court someday being read aloud by a lawyer who hates me and wants me to look bad to a jury of 12 peers who have no context. So let me think about how I can write this email that it won't look bad in court. I do that a lot. Just because I know that that's going to end up somewhere. It could. Mm-hmm. It's Arbanes Oxley. They have to keep everything. You never know. So if you know that you're storing all of your stuff, does that change the way you communicate? Uh, I'm curious to hear what the listeners have to say about that. And uh, there's lots of ways to contact us. Seems like the most popular method is just email jt at mindripmedia.com. There's always a fireside. There's Twitter accounts. There's our channels, which are pretty active these days. Telegram and Matrix. Join us in there. And we have a lot of, we go a little bit deeper on some of these things. We'll, we'll discuss all kinds of topics. There's a usually healthy conversation going in there. So join us in those chat channels. Send us messages. Let us know what you think. And let us know how you retain your data. And I also post memes in that channel that are funny. So, you know, there's that too. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Memes are encouraged. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody, and be excellent to each other. 